Welcome to the Salty Talks podcast. I'm your host, Corinne Newfie, and I'm the Aquaculture Communications Specialist with the Aquaculture Research Institute. So today I'm here with my friend Alicia, who's an oyster farmer, and I'm going to turn it over to her to introduce herself more. Hi, um, I'm Alicia Gallero. I'm the owner of Naughty Sister Sea Farm located in Yarmouth, Maine. The farm was established in 2020, and we're moving into our third year. Thanks. So before we get into the process of what an oyster farm is like and what your day looks like, uh, I'm just curious of how you got into this industry in the first place. If you studied something related in college or if this kind of came out of left field. Yeah. So um, initially I became interested in aquaculture when a large scale salmon farm announced that they were going to be coming to my community and I ended up becoming really involved in the public process and learning about land-based aquaculture versus net pen salmon aquaculture. Was that up in Belfast? Yeah. And um, it's kind of become a rabbit hole I've never come out of. I ended up working with two organizations uh, um, as a intern for the New England Ocean Cluster and Maine Oyster Company. And through both of those groups, I was able to visit um, upwards of like 20 farms and I still didn't think I would be starting my own by any means. Um, I thought I would head on to graduate school and study ocean food systems, but um, life had a different path in store. And on the day that I was deciding whether or not I was going to graduate school, I ended up putting a deposit down on Oyster Gear instead. So <laughs> um, I kind of just jumped in and haven't looked back. <laughs> That's awesome. So it sounds like you had worked on other farms prior to this. This wasn't obviously your first experience farming then on your own farm. Yeah, no, it wasn't my first experience. I I didn't go in entirely blind, though I've learned so much. Um, One of the things I did while working at Maine Oyster Company is when we'd receive deliveries at the restaurant, I just started talking to farmers and asking, hey, can I come out on your farm? And some people thought I wanted to visit, and I was like, no, I want to work. I want to learn. I want to see what you're doing. I want to get a better understanding on the water. I want to become more comfortable on the water. And ended up up having pretty great success doing that. Most people welcomed me with open arms, and some of those people are the ones who encouraged me to go ahead and start my own farm, which still feels crazy. (laughs) So it sounds like you had a bit of mentorship and other people uh, teaching you about oyster farming, but has there been a lot of self-education as well? Yeah, there definitely has been um, varying levels of mentorship from um, one person in particular, Thomas Henniger at Madeline Point Oyster Farm. He was kind of the person who took me under his wing. He was the guy who was like, hey, you should start your own farm. I'll help you. Um, And that just still felt crazy, but He's been a great resource in helping me learn to set anchors. I went out with his son and we set my my helix anchors and then he helped me set my lines and my equipment and learn to understand like why we design farms the way that um, ours are designed, which is a, a long line system with laterals to oyster cages. All of those different things um, were really helpful and educational. I absolutely would not be in such a sound position with the farm without them. But there's also been a lot of self-learning and education when it comes to sitting down and watching YouTube, learning to tie different (laughs) knots and designing um, a floating bag farm so that I can work more 
uh, independently and not be as reliant on additional help. So that's not a farming method. Most of the farms I'd visited were utilizing. It's definitely a popular method, but one I had significantly less exposure to. So, um, but people in aquaculture have been really helpful and forthcoming and in sharing knowledge and education. So um, I could not have done it independently. (laughs) That's so great to hear. So earlier this winter, uh, I had the opportunity to go out on the water with Alicia and harvest some oysters from her farm. And from that experience, it seems like you've got to be pretty independent in what you do, but it's also a lot of hard physical work. So is it challenging running a business on your own and being young and mostly doing it all by yourself? Yeah, definitely. Um, Initially, I'd never hoped or anticipated the goal was to never work alone on the water, and that really evolved late summer and in, into uh, this in past December, where I found myself working on the water independently almost every day. But and beyond working on the water alone, that includes you know preparing all the equipment or anything I may need for harvest, getting gas, doing the books, management orders, all of those things. And it's certainly overwhelming. Um, I've definitely taken to trying to utilize different pieces of like seafood tech to try to kind of boost my efficiency. I think a lot of people overlook it as a small scale farm, investing in things that feel like an additional expense. But I've, I really try to say like, you know, I pay for this and I value my time more. And those, those things have been really helpful. Like the e-tagging systems or the farm management like apps Uh, just trying to make sure I know where everything is because the goal is that one day maybe the farm can run without me but right now it it definitely can't. (laughs) What would you say is the best part about working for yourself? Um, It's definitely a flexible job. I've been really fortunate that you know recently I've had some um, personal kind of family crises and I've been the one that's been had the most flexibility to just step up and take on more responsibility with my family and trying to help Um, in ways that like a traditional job would have really limited me in you know taking off for a few days particularly in the winter time Um, right now all of the oysters are overwintered on the bottom so there's a lot less demanding work that being said I'm probably dilly-dallying on some really important (laughs) things but they're they'll get done Um, but I, I enjoy working for myself, but the other thing is that you never leave work. So even when you're out with people or having dinner, it, it's on your mind and it really commands your attention, even if you don't want it to. Um, in this next year, I'm hoping to find a, a better level of balance, but it's definitely daunting. <laughs> I can't even imagine um, doing that all by myself. So getting into oysters uh, now, before we jump into what the farming is like, uh, I just want to touch on the oyster life cycle real quick. So I think a lot of listeners might um, not be totally sure what an oyster farm looks like. So really simplified, after fertilization, the oyster's in its larval stage, so it's really, really small, swimming around still, um, and then it becomes spat, which is settling down on a surface and becoming sessile, and then growing into an adult oyster, um, which is what I think we can all picture. So when you farm, are you getting the oysters in their larval stage or their spat stage? What does it look like when you begin the farming process of growing an oyster? So when I purchase my oysters, I purchase from a hatchery and they are in kind of even beyond like a true 
spat and moving into like what we call seed. They're kind of the same. But I purchase the largest size spat that I'm able to get. I call it my insurance policy. Um, it gives me a level of confidence that the bigger they are, the less likely I am to damage them, lose them, mismanage. You just have high risk when you have really small oysters. And so for me, that's been a decision I've made. It also gives me a little extra time before they come to be seeded on the farm. If I were to get really small oysters, say one to four millimeters, I'd be having them in early June, some people late May, um, that they, they'll plant. And I get the luxury, in my opinion, of getting them early July. So I kind of get the farm up and running and then seed. And then that'll grow for about two years on the farm before it it's ready to go to market size product. But for me, I, I'm in the nine to 13 millimeter range. So it's a definitely, a, a bigger product than what a large number of larger scale farmers would get. So if it takes two years for the oysters to grow into what is a finished product, what are you doing in those two years with the oysters? And are you growing oysters at different stages so that each year you're having a product? Yeah, so each year um, I add an additional seed class to the, to the farm. And in that time, um, as they grow, they're in these bags and you'd like to kind of have a certain stocking density, which is about a quarter of a bag. And as they grow, they'll sometimes half to three quarters um, of the bag will full, fill up. And so I'm constantly splitting the bags um, into more bags to improve, uh, bring that back to an appropriate stocking density. And I usually use a piece of equipment called a tumbler to do that. The tumbler helps sort um, the seed by size. So I'll have uh, three sizes, a small, medium, and large. And I have two different tube sizes for different, um, whether it's a small seed, like a first year product versus the second year moving into market size product. And then that tumbler also will break down the shell and help you to create a better cup. Um, one of the things is like for really like a desirable oyster is nice shape, good cup, um, improves the shell density so it's like uh, less likely to break when you shuck it which is really attractive for chefs and raw bars um, and it creates a really beautiful product. When I went out with you we took a boat out to the farm site and there were these lines of what looked like floating bags or cages. Um, is this how most people are growing oysters? Um, I would say that most people most of the farms that I've visited are using a variation of an oyster cage between two and six bags. Um, they have a number of different sizes for, you know, that really matter on the, the site location, the water depth on what may work best for you. Also, I think that there's a pretty popular use of the single floating bags, and that's because they're so much more accessible for a small scale farmer. They're not necessarily perfect for people doing millions of oysters, but at a a moderate scale they work really well I can operate independently I think a lot of people farm in reverse to what I do which is I start my seed in oyster grow cages um, and then I move them to the floating bags where most people want them in the, the bags because they're easier to manage and flip and um, you can usually have them in shallower or warmer areas but I do that because where I finish my product um, it's it is shallow and warm also but I would, it's a lot more difficult for me to find someone to, to harvest and it doesn't require as much physically demanding work as it does to manage the seed and the cages. So 
I've kind of done it in reverse and that is what works well for me. But I would say those are probably the two most popular methods. So when you go to harvest them, are you handpicking them? So I generally handpick the oysters based on size through a predetermined like section of oysters that are considered markets. Those are the ones coming out of the largest size hole or tube of the tumbler. And then usually there's a quick hand sort that day and then they'll probably be on the farm for a week or two before they're harvested to ensure. Because we're actually like, it's like cutting a fingernail or you're damaging the oyster when you tumble it. So you don't usually want to harvest them right from being tumbled. You want to give them an opportunity to feed and recover a little bit so they'll have the longest shelf life, but so that the shell isn't too brittle that it will break and cause shell to be in the oyster. Um, Taking them out of the bags and then hand sorting and counting them. So what does a quality oyster look like? It's back to that, like, and any oyster is a good oyster, I think. I, as long as it's been handled appropriately for biosecurity, I think that it's kind of silly sometimes how caught up we get on a really pretty product. Um, ultimately, it's doing a good service for the ocean by helping to filter our water, improve um, the water quality balance, and improve, ensuring that our waters aren't over nutrient rich. But a really beautiful oyster is something with that nice cup and shape I think uh, the market's lending itself to prefer smaller sized oysters. It used to be, you know, three inch and above, and now we're seeing a lot of people prefer cocktail or petite. And so I'm finding that I'm selling majority of my product to that market. And honestly, that benefits me because I capture a similar price with a smaller oyster. So it spends less time on the farm, which improves efficiency in handling it. And it's really a beautiful product. And so I I do have that deep cup from tumbling um, four to five times a summer which is probably more than most people tumble. And some of that is because of poor farm management, accidentally tumbling things twice. And that's where the the data management apps help a lot. (laughs) So if you didn't tumble them, they would just get kind of like a wonky, like horn shaped shell or something. Yeah. Without, when they grow on the bottom in areas that are good or in nature, they're generally attached to something and there's natural methods of tumbling in a way like the ocean current is constantly moving it or different things um when we have it in this equipment it takes significantly more flow of water to like cause that natural tumble and so that's why we use the machine but they they do tend to grow if you let them go too long you know where they can access water so if they're overstocked they tend to grow a little bit wonkier where they're just trying to reach for space and for access to that flow and so I call, we call I call them like toenails, which they just get like grown out and long and skinny and curl a little bit. And you can correct that with a tumbler, but sometimes they get they can get a little too far gone. Sometimes if you don't tumble them regularly and they're in bags, they'll grow into the equipment and have a shape like the, the bag. It happens to all of us, but the goal is that you do it as little as possible and you try to keep that um, quality high. I think I said this to you before, but it would be cool if there was like imperfect produce of oysters i just want to eat the oyster yeah i think (laughs) that's the biggest thing is like you want to have this superior product but ultimately i find that people want my oysters whether or not they're pretty and they i've never really had a complaint about them and if there is one i'm happy i get to hear it honestly but yeah i think that there's totally should be a market for like shuck and uglies 
Yeah. And there, there is in some states um, and like areas where the growing period is significantly faster. They have shucking markets, so they'll, you know, grow oysters out and have very little maintenance beyond biofouling management and stocking density. They don't tumble. They just try to take care of those products. And then they go to a shucking house for a reduced price, but it required way less work. And then they're sold more by a bushel or by the pound versus by the piece. Um, and those are the things that you'll see oyster, oyster pull boys and things like that. It's kind of sacrilegious to do that in Maine because it takes such a long time to to make that product. It's like, how could you? Yeah. Oh, man. You gave me, I think, some of the, like, quote, discards before Thanksgiving. They tasted great. So it sounds like you're harvesting them and you're selling them whole to different restaurants around Portland? Or are you also shucking them, too? Predominantly, my market is just doing um, sales to restaurants. Uh, I don't hold all the licensing to do direct-to-consumer sales or... Um, catering events. I've worked with other people on catering events or sold my oysters to people with appropriate licensing for that um, and had really good success. But the nature of being a young person and being a little more, not necessarily nomadic, but I don't own a home. I don't own a location or a facility where I can have a traditional dealer's license. And for me, that means that um, it limits a little bit of my sales, but it also it uh, doesn't harm my sales. It just limits the the market that I'm accessing. But I've I've not hit too many barriers as a result, and and so for me that works right now. But in the future, that's definitely something I hope to per- pursue beyond just selling direct to restaurant or um, to shellfish dealers. So while we're on the culinary side of oysters, thinking in terms of like wine really quickly, so like temperature, soil. All of that is affecting grapes when you grow them for wine, which then affects the taste of the wine. Does water, temperature, mineral, like depth that the oysters grown at grown at have any effect on the oyster flavor? Yeah, and in the oyster realm, we're now calling that miroir, and so like terroir. Yeah, like terroir and wine, and and those flavor profiles. So the higher the salinity, the saltier the oyster. Um, if you have a bottom-grown product versus a surface-grown product, even at the same site, it's remarkable the flavor profile differences. Um, you know, the it's not like you're consuming heavy metals, but people will say things have like a metallic-y finish or a cucumber finish, and this is something that's really evolving rapidly in oysters, um, is like tasting books and tasting notes and profiles and identifying those and describing them, and it's really creating like a very unique product in the seafood world because um, m- because it's a raw product you don't necessarily see that like with mussels where it, even though you can have a totally different size of meat or sh- meat to shell ratio between say P- Pinsetta Rhode Island and Casco Bay you're not analyzing it exactly for the same raw flavor and so it's been really cool to see this kind of push in the, like a boutique product or an effort to try as many um, different oysters from different regions as possible. One of your oysters compared to, let's say, an oyster grown up in the Damariscotta River is going to taste different because they're filtering 50 gallons of water a day or something like that, right? So it's depending on like the nutrient uptake and the type of algae that's in the water yours is going to taste different from somewhere somewhere else in Maine. Definitely. Like, they're probably in more brackish waters with, like, water, like, fresh water flowing through that river system 
where um, I am technically, like, one of my sites is, is more at the mouth of a river, but it's past the point of where the brackish water, uh, like, the fresh water and the, the salt water are mixing. I'm, I'm truly more in the salt water area of that. It's just going to have different flavor profiles based on that geography. Does the flavor change also throughout the year, like, if an oyster harvested in the summer compared to a winter oyster yeah the the colder the water the tastier the oyster and that's what kind of the magic of a main oyster has is that um, oysters begin storing glucose for the winter because uh, they're anticipating going into like a hibernation where they'll have less nutrients and things that they're feeding on so they actually plump up a bit and have like a higher sugar content so they're sweeter and plumper and have a fuller body in the winter um so despite like the extreme popularity in the summer that's our our big season the the flavor is best in the winter you're not harvesting them year-round right you don't harvest in the winter at this time i'm not harvesting year-round and i think that's a long-term goal for me um there may be a time in the future where i make an effort to harvest a little bit more through the winter but this year I I harvested through Christmas which was not the plan and I think it was really good though it it was a challenge it taught me I'm capable of doing that that it I felt much more confident on the water in the later months um, particularly independently like I said it's not the goal but it does happen and fortunately there are other farmers around me who I try to communicate with that I'm on the water I'm nearby that I'm alone I have a life jacket on but Ultimately, I'd like to be off the water between like Christmas and April, and that's when I'll begin thinking about raising some of my oysters to the surface, and then probably this year I'll try to just start harvesting product um, late April, and then May and June will really be the, the sprint season of getting things on the surface, making sure equipment's ready to go, and getting ready to take on new seed by July. So what does your farm look like right now? Is it just, do you still have bags out there or there's just nothing out there? Um, everything is on the bottom. So oyster cages are sunk to the bottom. The, there's surface oyster cages that you fill pontoons and you flip them. And so those have bags of oysters inside of them. And then I have bottom cages, which will always remain on the bottom um, until I, I don't anticipate using them through the summer, um, but they have oysters and bottom culture and all of my floating bags are currently on land and um a lot of bags are yet to be built and ready to go (laughs) so i'll help you build some bags yeah (laughs) Um, there's no floating bags on the surface the last of them were taken out of water on i think december 21st the shortest day of the year and what happened to be the biggest tide so we almost got stuck (laughs) up during the one of the coldest days we were out there. Fortunately, splat calm, but yeah, it was like a negative oh one foot tide. We almost didn't make it in. So I'm happy everything's out of the water. Yeah, geez. Um, so even though you don't grow throughout the winter, we're in Maine. It's going to get pretty cold. Is the cold water an issue in the latter part of your season? I think it's a greater concern for me just being on the water and, you know, being like cognizant of you know, the risk factor of being um, out on the ocean and near cold water. But for the product, the biggest concern is just trying to make sure they don't get too exposed and too cold. Farms that grow throughout the year or harvest throughout the year, everybody's technically growing as long as the product's in the water. For those farmers, 
they have to have measures to like actually protect the oysters from the cold. So in the summer, we have all this ice out there to protect them from the sun and the warmth and, and ensure that there's strong biosecurity in preventing any... Um, you mean like when you're harvesting? Yeah, when we're harvesting. And then in the winter, I know like Mirpoint was telling me that they have like pretty much like a special blanket coverings <laughs> because they were having like their oysters like ice up. Um, and so they've created a special method of protecting them and they try to have them out of the water for as little time as possible when they're on the boat and just get them back to shore and get them um, brought to appropriate temperature, but not too cold. <laughs> I'm picturing oysters like cuddled up in a cute little blanket on the boat ride back. So what other issues do you deal with in Maine? Like it can get pretty windy. Uh, biofouling is a common issue that a lot of farmers seem to deal with. I think everybody in all aquaculture, these are the greatest challenges, is you're at the mercy of the waves, the wind, the weather, the water. Um, and and there's certainly similar issues when you have like terrestrial land-based farming. But um, when you're on the water, there's just risks that are different um, that you have to really be aware of. And that's been my greatest concern in having people on my farm is trying to make sure everybody's safe and making sure we manage that appropriately. It can make working on the farm really difficult. Some days I've damaged more equipment as I was trying to fix something I broke and I just had to cut my losses and, and leave it be and hope that it would still be there the following day because it was so windy. And if if for some reason there was equipment lost, then that next day when the weather's appropriate, you're going searching for it and trying to be a good steward of the water and ensure you don't have product or equipment floating around. Fortunately, I've, I've not really lost much equipment um, and the few times that I have, I've generally been able to find it the following day, um, just beached on the neighboring island. But biofouling definitely can slow you down. That was a big issue. Once you get behind, it feels like you can't catch up. I was having issues where I had my stocking density of my bags too high so the equipment wouldn't stay flipped, um, which we, we do what's called flipping the equipment into the sun and the oysters can actually be outside of the water for you know a day or two and the sun is working to like as a natural kind of biofouling control system to kill the seaweed and sea squirts um or tunicates that grow on the equipment that can be really heavy and be really frustrating they can also kill the mussels that are a little more likely to grow on the equipment and die much more easily than oysters when exposed to heat. Biofouling is definitely a problem, but it's just learning to adapt and manage it appropriately, being on top of it. I like to always have extra equipment that it's not in use so I can rotate equipment out to ensure that I can get whatever is really fouled back to shore and have it dry in the sun and pressure wash it versus just having it continue to grow. But there's definitely some days I'm out there with pretty much like a floor metal scraper, I call it a knife on a stick, and I'm ripping stuff off because I've run out of that extra gear. So that's a big goal this year is improving my biofouling management. Uh, that sounds hard because it's mostly out of your control, but it sounds like there are some ways to somewhat manage that. Yeah, I think large-scale farms have it down really well. And that was a thing for me is improving schedule consistency and having additional people on the days where I'm doing biofouling control. Um, sometimes I flip the cages from the water and ensuring that there's someone else on the boat um, just to watch me for safety and things like that. There's a lot of stuff that I stop, I, I don't do because I think the risk isn't worth the reward. 
and um, walking a fine line of that and comfort level. And so this coming year, I, it sh I think it'll be a lot different culture and environment for me on my farm, but it's just learning through experience and how to manage my business, how to manage a farm and how to manage myself safely and appropriately. So I'm sure on the flip side, there's also a lot of things that are really great about growing your own oysters in Maine. Is there anything in particular that's your favorite about being out on the water or the Maine oyster brand in general? Basically what I do is one of the coolest jobs ever. I I think it has so much more to do with being out on the water than, than anything else. I love growing a great oyster, but there's just something magical about being on the Maine wa waters and being in tune with nature in a, a totally unique way. Um, and doing something that I really believe is restorative and good for the environment and good for us to consume. Like at the end of the day, I'm producing food. And I think that's what is really interesting and sometimes gets lost right now in oyster aquaculture and publicity. It's like we're growing food. That speaks to the magic of what we're doing. My favorite thing about uh, farming is, like I said, just being out there uh, and, and it's a challenge every day. And I feel like I've had, had such significant growth it's like therapy in its own way it's like devastating <laughs> and frustrating and exciting all at once but um also I get to have like a deep sense of pride no one else knows what I'm doing out there some days but I come home and I feel so accomplished and exhausted <laughs> I think it's super cool that you're doing all this at the age of 24 and being so raw and open and honest about all the ups and downs of oyster farming owning your own business being a young female entrepreneur and I can imagine that there's a lot of people who are looking up to you, women and just other people in general. Do you have any role models that you look up to when things on the farm are challenging? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's been interesting in my evolution of like who I look up to and why. Um, and I think that it goes beyond just like aquaculture mentors, but just strong women in general. Mm -hmm. um, but like there are like a few farmers really close to me that I like think of and refer to often. Um, one of the farmers was the one I had mentioned before, Thomas Henniger and his farm manager, Ben, have been really helpful and insightful. And then I, I definitely look up to two women, Amanda Mosier and, and Emily Selinger, who are just like strong women who, you know, really are out there to farm in my perception. Like I've been fortunate that I've gotten a lot of publicity and you know, social media following or whatever, but they, they just are out there doing the work and I feel like they're just so invested in what they do and they create this really awesome product and they don't really care about the rest. Um, I'm sure they do in their own ways, but I, I just like have a lot of respect for that. You know, I think there's a lot of up and downs in being an entrepreneur, but I totally encourage other people to do it. I, I think about life in a way that we only have one and my risk tolerance now is just really high. And I encourage other people to take that on too, because I think we're moving away from the culture of like, you know, the nine to five and job security and ensuring we have retirement. All of those things are important. And there, there's some level of things that I wish I could have more in my job in like financial security, um, which I hope will come. <laughs> I plan to have come, um, but you know, ultimately it's like, it may just be this like amazing phase of life and I don't have any regrets about that. Even, I just think about it, even if the farm were to fail or something goes wrong and the investments I've made, it's like, it's just money and there's always gonna be more of it if you work hard. Yeah, you're doing what you're doing and you like doing it. Before we wrap up, 
I want to ask if there's anything that you wish that people knew about oyster farming or running a small-scale farm in general. One of the things that's really important in uh, oyster farming and aquaculture as a whole is that we use, to the best of our ability, our our reach to explain why aquaculture is important, why seafood and food is important to our food systems, feeding the world. And, you know, right now oysters are a luxury product, it seems, but other products don't have to be. And that ultimately what our world needs is an expansion of aquaculture, that scaling is going to be required for um, just meeting demand, improving sustainable food production, but also for profitability. I think I get frustrated that people believe because we're farmers, like we're being greedy if we wanna make money or grow. And I just wanna have a business where I can employ other people for you know, a reasonable rate of their labor, which is not insignificant. Like the, the work that people put in on farms, they're breaking their backs to bring you, bring you your food. They're putting their lives at risk being out on the water and weather days that you know, are questionable and I don't think it's wrong to want to have a strong, profitable business. And I think a lot of people find aquaculture and seaweed farming and oyster farming to be hot and sexy and cool. But there's a perception that the small scale farmer is like king. And that's not the case. A lot of people are not making much money and they're losing money on their business and they're not in a position to grow. And so I think understanding that there's such significant value to, to scaling and importance to it is is something we have to continue to to share with the public and find better ways to to share this messaging so you go out to your boat there's like a little lamp and a little genie comes out of it and gives you one wish for your farm what would you wish for oh god um <laughs> that's a great question i wish there was just someone else to do all the work <laughs> who knew how to tie knots and that there was no fouling Ultimately, I wish they would just do all the lease work for me and give me a lease, uh, the state, <laughs> a larger scale lease. That's the biggest concern and question for people. It's the process right now is prohibited to growth. Um, it's certainly, I've been involved now in a separate business on more than 90 LPAs, which are small scale aquaculture licenses and leases across the state of Maine. and. It's definitely, this process has me reconsidering the scale and growth of my business because three to four years to, to know that I'm gonna grow is is kind of maxing out my personal risk tolerance. Yeah. And definitely having me question the scalability of my business and the goals that I have for it. Noted, okay. You wish for so the my genie, genie to come. is that fix the leasing system, help us grow and be <laughs> successful. I think that's actually a good wrap-up point. Uh, you're going to Australia soon to learn more about oyster farming, right? So I will definitely have to have you back on again to hear about your trip and what you learned there. So I just want to say thanks for being here today, and I definitely learned a lot about oyster culture that I didn't know before. Um, and it's also just fun to see a friend being the face of such a cool, great oyster brand. And you should for sure check out Naughty Sisters, which I will link to in the show notes. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.